Hello and welcome to this special Wired podcast in collaboration with Cisco. I'm Liat Clark, contributing editor at Wired, and we're here to talk about the next 30 years of the web. It's been 30 years since the inception of the World Wide Web, and we're looking forward to the next 30 years and what it holds. Today, that entails the not-so-small topic of how to make AI and the Internet of Things work for society. We all want technology that makes our lives better, and the promise of AI and IoT to do just that is enormous. Everything from leisure and work to transport and education are being transformed. This year, that future gets accelerated with the rollout of 5G, and by 2036, g will have an even greater impact. But how can we use these rollouts to craft a better future for the whole of society, and perhaps even realize the original intent of the web, to be the great equalizer, making information accessible to everyone? Here to fix the future in 40 minutes or less, we have two special guests. Would you both like to introduce yourselves and tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Thanks, Liette. I'm Adrian Lovett. I'm the president and CEO of the World Wide Web Foundation, which was created by the web's inventor, Tim Berners-Lee, 10 years ago uh, to defend his founding vision of the web being firstly for everyone and secondly being a public good that one way or another should serve humanity, not the other way around. A noble enterprise. Thank you. We all agree. Hi, Liat. Uh, my name is Chintan Patel. I'm the chief technologist at Cisco in the UK and Ireland, and we're one of the uh, foundations of the internet. Uh, you know, 80% of internet connections around the world touch our technology, and we're very proud of what we've done so far, and we want to help make the internet an even better place in the future. Thank you, Chintan. So we're going to work out exactly how to do that in the next 30 minutes. As to kick off, I'd like to briefly talk about how lampposts are actually scuppering our plans for a better society. For any listeners unaware, lampposts and other tools structures in the UK are being used to house transmitters vital to the 5G rollout. But it was revealed this week that local councils are in legal disputes uh, with mobile providers over rental fees. And on top of that, rural councils are actually complaining that there's been no interest in investing in their regions. Uh, Part of the point of today's podcast is really to talk about, you know, what, what lessons we've learned from the past and how we can make sure we don't make those again in the future. And when I read this story, I thought, woe is us. (laughs) We're not getting off to a great start. If, you know, we have North Yorkshire Council saying, why is no one investing here? Uh, what, what do you think we really need to do to, to remedy this now and to make this work for everyone? So I think there's a there's a real opportunity with uh, new technologies like 5G and others to, to kind of reduce the digital divide, which not only exists globally for, for people to have access to the internet and, and, and better online services, but, but also here in the UK. I mean, you, you've cited there just one example. Um, there are very positive examples of where, you know, there are trials of this sort of technology going on to actually to stop some of the uh, issues of rural connectivity, for example. So we have a 5G project called Rural First going on here in the UK uh, already where, you know, in uh, uh, in Somerset, to, uh, we're, we're using it to connect IoT and agriculture and agri-tech environments. Uh, similarly, we're, we're using it in the Orkney Islands to, to actually help with broadcasting services. So the important thing here is, I think, is to think about how Actually, governments, um, industry, local communities can actually come together to solve some of these challenges um, and actually help more people get online with these services rather than think about the the potential pitfalls of having a mast in your area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think from the point of view of the World Wide Web Foundation, the, the, the 
you know, first of all, we think that the that it's absolutely important to start with a big vision, with with a big ambition. Um, you know, if we're serious about this idea that the that the web and the internet and technology should be available to everyone, well, that's not going to happen just by accident. It's not even going to happen, frankly, just because sort of market forces take us there. They won't take us the whole way there. Um, so, you know, uh, you, you started off with the reference to lampposts, which is a, a beautifully uh, British um, <laughs> kind of starting point Don't for the discussion. <laughs> Don't take our lampposts. Exactly. Um, but actually, to, to sort of borrow that as, a, as an analogy, um, you know, I think the way we've got to think about this is not so different from how we think about uh, how we all navigate each other around each other in, in our towns and villages and out in our streets, right? You know, there's a job for governments to do, of course, to, to put up the signposts and set the speed limits and, uh, and all of that. There's a job for companies to do to, to build vehicles that are safe and will get us from where we want to get to to where we want to go. Um, and, and there's crucially a job for all of us as citizens. In fact, there's a number of jobs for citizens. Firstly, we've, yes, we've got to you know, operate the vehicles in a the way they're supposed to be operated and we've got to obey the speed limits. So, but even more importantly than that, we've got to establish social norms on how we're going to, to, to navigate this. And those norms in, in our familiar offline world have taken decades or actually arguably centuries millennia to to evolve how, how we how we respect each other how we recognize you know what's your right and what's my right and how where we have to compromise and so on it's no surprise that we're struggling a bit with some of that in the in our online experience which is only 10 15 20 years old and, and in some aspects even shorter time than that but we have to figure that out because it seems to us from a from the point of view of the web foundation that that uh, only if we get that balance of government's responsibilities, uh, companies' responsibilities, and citizens' responsibilities are we going to get the people of North Yorkshire yeah. um, comfortable with and and benefiting from uh, yeah. the, the the opportunities that, that we all want to see. And a huge part of it is people recognising those benefits. 5G probably just sounds like an arbitrary another number to a lot of members of the public, and they don't see you know the true benefit to them and their communities um in, in an article this week about this lamppost travesty um the, the councils were saying you know they need these rental fees to roll out innovations that will help everyone it will help their communities have 5g everywhere it will help with air quality sensors it will help with autonomous cars in the future so really part of this i think you know some of these councils their their focus is how do we make sure network providers are making this for everyone and that everyone's going to benefit from these technologies but it's about yeah people seeing those benefits yeah i, I think it's it's uh, it's a great point ha- having that kind of underlying infrastructure for connectivity is go- going to be so important for the uk going forward i mean you know it just that technology has to be seen as one of the big productivity levers for for the uk in in kind of the world going forward but with everything that's going on and, and that's probably one of the things we've got going for ourselves that we have an opportunity to lead the world in i think you know our research has shown at cisco that you know the last 30 years of the web and the internet have have given us so much but actually you know looking forward People are just highly optimistic about what the internet can give them from a connectivity perspective around better access to healthcare, for example. So if I have better connectivity, can I get access to the doctor that I need to see when I need to see them, as opposed to the situations we all face every day today, for example? Can we get better access to education? Uh, And can we make it more universal so that, you know, the kids growing up uh, are, are able to access some of the online 
education service with the best educators and it and it's not just based around the particular school that you live next to and can, can we get better reach so you know i think to your point how can we use the the the, the connectivity and the infrastructure to help, help people with their kind of everyday issues yeah. um and and those two came out very strongly not just here in the uk but globally as to as to what people want from a from a future web and internet yeah, and really, you've listed kind of the basic human needs that ever you know, health, yeah. safety, education, all these skills to make our lives better. And I think a lot of people just associate a better connectivity with more Ubers, more you know, yeah. billionaires making more money mm-hmm. for themselves mm-hmm. with with these disruptions that are helpful, but to a you know, kind of they're, they're superfluous and they are for maybe higher income communities. I think in your uh, in, in the Web Foundation's case for the Web Report in 2018, you guys pointed out the stark inequality across the globe, including in the UK, uh, and really affordability, basic affordability and equal access just isn't happening today. And like you say, it's not been that long. It's not been around that long in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but but we already are seeing that across the globe, that half the world's population are not really able to make the most of web services now. Yes. I mean, we passed this point just a few months ago where for the first time more than half the world was online, which, uh, as you as you imply, it was sort of cause for celebration and also cause for uh, for at least concern, certainly not panic, but, but a, a need for real uh, new resolution to ensure that we are going to reach all of those people and that it's a web that people want, a web that's worth having. Uh, so we're halfway there on the on the first job to get everybody connected. And that, of course, is not just about ensuring that they've got a, a 3G or 4G signal that they can connect to. It's also about at least three other things. One, can they afford to? Um, and something we do at the Web Foundation is uh, is lead the Alliance for Affordable Internet, which Cisco are members of, um, and where we work together uh, at national level in developing countries to, to drive down the price of broadband and get, mm. get more, more people able to connect uh, and very importantly more women able to connect because there's a real gender divide here so affordability is important skills is important uh, people need to, to feel they have at least the basic digital skills to be able to to, to engage online uh, and the last one is making sure there's relevant content for people to engage with there's no point people being able to afford it and having the skills mm-hmm. if there's nothing that's relevant to their lives or even in their language which mm-hmm. is uh, oh, you know, yes, one of the problems. that was a shocking statistic it was something oh, I find it somewhere in my notes but it's something like 56 percent of content on the web is in English, despite yes. that you know that not yeah. correlating in the slightest the global population. Yeah, that's right, and I think it, more than eighty percent uh, in the sort of the the ten or so mm. biggest languages, which are not the languages spoken by not the first languages spoken by eighty percent of the population. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think the, the, this to Adrian's point, there's a real opportunity now to actually learn from the last thirty years. Uh, we didn't know where this was going to go, you know, when when Sir Tim Berners Lee first started it, but you know, we are where we are, and and, and the web's done so much good. We now have an opportunity, actually, as as industry, government, and academia, and, and each of us really to think about what do the next thirty years look like, and as the next fifty percent come online, can we can we make it a better place? Can we make it a more secure place? Can we make it safer for people to come online as we as we allow uh, more communities to get online? And you know, that's a big part of what um, certainly the Web Foundation driving and, and, and us at Cisco globally is, is how do we bring all of these communities online and the, and the way we do that is not just by providing connectivity but to Adrian's point just around the skills and, and actually the education around that and so you know one of the programs that we've been running um, for the last 20 years is something called Networking Academy and, and that is a program really around providing STEM level skill sets to communities around the world and 
We've trained probably around just over 9.2 million people globally today. In fact, there's, you know, over 200,000 uh, here just in the UK, for example. So just getting education around whether it's basic coding, whether it's getting online, increasingly now more around cybersecurity skills. But we just, we, we get really heartwarming and fascinating stories coming out as, as people embark on that journey. And uh, there was one just a few weeks ago where I heard of, uh, bazaars in India, right? Um, in the Kutch region, where which are pretty dominated by women who work there in the bazaars, selling small goods, clothing, pottery, etc. And this is an environment that's pretty much, you know, populated by women who are working, but generally controlled by men, and 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 not, you know, they don't necessarily have the access to technology. And you know, as we've as we've the, our local teams have kind of worked with them to actually enable those women to get online, think about how they can actually market their products online to a more global audience. It's just been a phenomenal transformation in that. You know, kind of the African proverb of if you train a, a man, you train an individual. When you train a woman, you train a generation. And and, it, and 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 now what we're seeing is, you know, even in places like India where, you know, probably in the last decade data service usage was about 100th in the world. You know, it's now the number one user of data services globally from a mobile perspective. So providing that connectivity, actually helping people get online, yeah. you start to change a generation and, and provide new new capabilities. That's an amazing example of something that you would you think that's going to be an offline business forever for the rest of time. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, the way it's actually, because that's what's coming out with what what we're talking about is uh, public services and just day-to-day normal things like your shop stall on the street rather than perhaps, you know, the autonomous flying cars that we're all hoping will be the future one day. It's those kind of base public services and and Yeah, it, it's, uh, in, you know, I've, I've talked about kind of a, an example in India, but just here in the UK, I mean, that the 5G projects that we're working on are very much around actually connecting the, uh, the rural communities. And, um, you know, agriculture is a big part of that, uh, you know, so actually helping farmers in, in rural areas like Somerset to actually you know, not only use IoT technology and connectivity for better management of their livestock, but actually how do they take what is their local business and local market and actually turn it into a global market? So so it's not just in developing countries that where we can actually help with connectivity and online services. Actually, it's here uh, in the UK as well. Yeah, where whatever it is, 2.7 million homes unconnected is still mm. in the UK, if you can believe it. This is a really lovely, optimistic, positive story. So now I feel terrible because I'm going to go negative again. <laughs> Just talking a little bit about kind of not going back to mistakes of the past. The original goal of the web was to make information freely available to all. Um, but today, the, the kind of biggest companies in the globe, on the in the globe, are, are free on paper, but people are paying in space with their data and their identity. Those algorithms are closed off, and they're deciding what people see and when. And this has had huge implications. We've seen in the last couple years. And you guys, uh, Adrian, pointed this out in your report, how, you know, everything from how people are hired to who's targeted with payday loans uh, are being run by automation. And AI is supposed to, again, kind of save us all and make our lives better. But we're seeing increasingly how it can actually drive inequality. How do we turn that tide, put people in control and make it a driver of equality and, and you know, do the job that, that we've hopefully invented it for? Yeah. Well, I think I think and you're, you're right. There is that negative side and we're very, very mindful of that. And I think the roots of the problem there go back to design and 
many of the big tech firms tell us now and and with some credibility that they do things differently now. But certainly the way things were done up until relatively recently, there was much too little thinking through what equality by design really might mean. In fact, I wasn't really thinking about equality by design. Nothing wrong with getting great products out there that people can use and and, and, uh, are either fun or very useful in our lives or help make money or whatever. That's all great. But unless you have a consideration right at the start of the way the story is going to end uh, with, with the rollout of a particular technology or particular product, then we'll get problems. And we have had problems. And so no surprise that... That, uh, I think the Internet Society did a survey suggesting that about 75% of people don't want devices in their homes. No surprise that there is that kind of skepticism when the actual experience that people have um, of, of some of those devices uh, and the stories they may hear uh, from others are... Um, are in some cases quite alarming. You know, the New York Times study last year that found that... Uh, that uh, in a, an increasing uh, number of cases, um, domestic abuse uh, survivors and victims were reporting that the devices in their homes were being used by abusive partners to mm. to, to abuse them. You know, uh, even even after those partners sometimes had left, still having cameras in the home, yeah. being able to change the, the thermostat in the home, things like that. Now, of course, the people who, who, who develop those technologies never at the start thought, oh, yeah, this will be something that could be used for domestic yeah. abuse. Of course, far from it. But by so not thinking about that, of course, yeah. yes. And it, but, but, but unfortunately, when you're developing such powerful technologies, there has to be a, a, an equally strong sense of responsibility. And I think, as I said, you know, the industry is getting that much more than it did uh, previously. But I think with Without that, that, that thinking about equality by design, we're going to struggle. And also, without a real think, a real th- hard think about uh, about data, the quality of data that we put in uh, determines the quality of the product that, that we put out. And uh, you know, everybody knows this now. Uh, we hope, but you know, if you train an algorithm, uh, say a facial recognition algorithm on thousands of faces that all happen to be from the west coast of uh, the United States, then of course that algorithm is going to struggle mm-hmm. when it engages with populations that are not typical yeah, of yeah. the west coast of the United States. And that, that technology then becomes at best irrelevant, uh, at worst positively harmful yeah. to significant groups of, of people, whether based on their ethnicity or their gender or, or disability or all sorts of things um, that need to be thought through from the start in these systems. So we're only ever going to be as good as the, the data that we put in. We need to do a better job of ensuring that we don't reinforce existing human biases in that data. Yeah, uh, we've already seen a lot of famous examples. Amazon in the UK a couple of years ago had to... Had to um, shut its its new AI HR system because it was just reinforcing uh, hiring biases against women. And I think typically, you know, AI, we're all told, we all know the more information, the better, the more information, the better. But I guess, you know, what you're saying is for your specific purpose, what's the best data? It's not, yes, you need, you know, if you're training an algorithm to spot uh, tumors or, or whatever it is, then you need as much information as possible. But when you're dealing with people and kind of human yeah. problems, you need to have 
a curated yeah. pool of data. Yeah, I think I think curated data um, and and data that is diverse, but also diverse teams building on that data. Yeah. So that actually the people who are building those algorithms have to be diverse and have a have views that uh, take into account the end audience uh, or the consumer of that data and, and those services in the end. I think that's important. I think this is where um, you know we need more global collaboration. You know, it, to Adrian's point, it can't just be you're sitting in the West Coast building something. You know that that can't because products now are no longer just for your local market. They, they, they are global in many ways, in, in, in whatever you're doing. So especially in, in, in the online world. So um, I think more global collaboration between both companies, um, governments who are kind of forward thinking in some of this space, but then lots of uh, input from academia who can actually come together to solve some of these challenges. I mean, just one, one of the examples of where we're trying to do some of this work uh, is with UCL, University College London in, in the UK here, you know, some of the world's foremost uh, AI research teams, but actually working with them, teams in the US and and around the globe to actually look at data privacy, data bias, um, how algorithms are built and, and, you know, really starting to to get global collaboration started on this uh, because it it is, as you say, an area that we need to to definitely look at. I think what it will offer in the future, if we do get it right, is to your healthcare example, right? I mean, if, if we can have this mass of data and we can bring the best and brightest diverse teams together, then we can actually go on and, and, and solve some of the bigger challenges in society like drug discovery. You know, we haven't had some major, any major breakthroughs in the last 30, 40, 50 years for, for potentially what would happen in, 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 a, in a globe where populations continuing to increase. We've got aging populations. We haven't solved some of the bigger challenges in, in healthcare. Here's a great opportunity for us to actually bring society together to do something and, and solve some of those challenges. And, and to do that, that's why we need that connectivity, because we're going to have huge amounts of data that's not going to sit in one place. It's going to be dispersed. Um, it's going to be collected all the time by IoT sensors and things we're wearing. Uh, and, and that's why that's, that, that connectivity needs to be there. And whether it's 5G or something else... Uh, but it absolutely has to be secure. I think that's that's the key thing. You know, uh, the data has to be secure, and that's a, that's a big part of I think what we need to do. Absolutely, it feels like that. On the, on the one hand, we know machines are going to be much better at us than identifying tumors and and using these enormous pools of data. On the other hand, the human connection and feeding that into yeah. society. The the example that I can't stop thinking about, which was on the news today this this week, is uh, the UN report on. Alexa and Siri and everyone um, reinforcing biases around gender by making their voice assistants subservient women. And, you know, these people have created this incredible thing that, you know, incredible voice technology, the science and the, the, the work that went on for this years and years. But someone missed the very human unintended consequence, which we talk about a lot, which seems starkly obvious to anyone, really, when uh, as soon as you think about it, uh, that, of course, that's reinforcing negative gender stereotypes. But, yeah, um, yeah you can have kind of all the, all this the academia and well, but you need to have the a human, human arbitrary. Yeah, yeah that, absolutely. Connected. Yeah. Um, but t- talking actually about this kind of global, local uh, collaborations with government and industry, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. There's a, there's a competition going on in the UK now, a government competition for 5G R&D projects. And interestingly, they, they're they obviously about using 5G in novel ways that's going to help society. But the government says the ideas must use AI, cloud, IoT, satellite, or the tactile internet. Um, and really, everything they're talking about in the competition feels like 
This is about making global and local work for everybody. Uh, the tactile internet we've been talking a little bit about is quite a kind of exciting culmination of all these technologies coming together with haptics and everything working seamlessly so we can enable kind of real transformations that impact people. Things like remote surgery won't be headline grabbers, they'll be just everyday affairs. Uh, We've been a little bit negative, but in a very positive sense. Do we see this coming together, the tactile internet and this, this kind of as this new leveler in society. Uh, if we can get it right, if we can get the connection in rural and urban and we get government and community and industry working together, will this kind of enable a more kind of seamless integration of services that that helps everyone? How do you see, how, what's kind of the optimistic side? Yeah, you know, we're the internet's optimists as well. Uh, and um, we, we do think, uh, uh, you know, with all, all the advent of all of this technology, I think, you know, over the next few decades, we'll, we'll start to see um, technology that, that is far more embedded in our environments, um, becoming invisible so that we're not locked in at looking at something that's physically there in front of us, uh, but being more intuitive, you yeah. know, embedded in our everyday lives in a, in a much... Um, uh, safer and secure way that that gives us the experiences that we need. So, you know, whether that's accessing online services, whether that's um, buying something online and experience experiencing it before you buy it, uh, you know, through the tactile internet. Um, yes, perfume. Was per- your example? Perfume, there, there was a, there was an example <laughs> of of actually being able to, to to smell the perfume you're going to buy before you buy it online. And so, so new technology that's been created to uh, to allow us to do that. So, so there are lots of examples of those sorts of things. Um, but but really it comes back down to you know how how will it actually improve our lives you know that that's probably the key thing how, will it will it improve our lives for the better will it actually help us do the everyday things that we need to do in a in a more efficient way but not taking the human element out of it you know not completely uh, um turning it into a, a, a kind of a star trek type of world um but having that human element in there is is something that we think is going to be important yeah, I'm not sure about the smell thing, although that might actually, I was just thinking actually that that might put me off if I was about to order a delivery from uh, from my uh, local fried chicken store and it gave me the smell of the, of the, of the shop. I might You'll think, remember. no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's a good step. Um, but uh, no, I think I think there are there are two things that need to happen in order for the the optimistic scenario uh, or the outcome to, to, to come true um, that you painted there. There one is um, that there needs to be an understanding of the roles of uh, of governments, of companies, and of citizens. And as I was saying earlier, each have a part to play. And something that we're doing with with Sir Tim Berners Lee at the Web Foundation is to put forward this idea of a contract for the web, where we would uh, where we have already uh, established a set of principles for governments, for companies, and citizens each to take on in order to ensure that the web really will be for everyone and will be a public good uh, as it was intended. Um, and we're now at the stage with two hundred organisations having signed on to those principles and engage in the process um, from governments to, to companies to civil society groups. We're now at the stage of drilling down into what do those uh, principles mean in, in in practical terms, what concrete commitments can each of those uh, those players make. And we're going to seek to unveil that full contract for the web later this year. So I think that kind of recognition of everyone having responsibilities and everyone stepping up is important. And then I think the other thing, which Chintan, you alluded to as well, is recognizing that, that we're operating in a context of, of of humanity and 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 we as humans, I I, I tend to think we're, we're not irrational, 
but we are uh, we are complicated, um, and we make decisions based on a whole number of filters. Our brains are incredibly uh, complicated and brilliant, uh, and can absorb so many different signals, um, which inform our decisions. But we also operate in the context of our experience. So when new technology comes along, which really is something that we've never understood before, the idea that a smell can come out of mm. uh, out of your phone that mm. can take you to another place in the world or something, that's that's just ridiculous, isn't it, right? <laughs> Not so different from, you know, what uh, now 200 years ago almost, when I think 1825, the first... A commercial train route ran in the north of England, um, I think out of Preston. Um, and uh, there was a, a widely held view at that time that if you put people on those trains, because they were going at sort of 50 miles an hour or something, that their limbs would fly off, that, would, that they'd be literally be ripped off the train. Mm-hmm. Um, because nobody in human experience ever for millennia had moved faster than the speed of a horse <laughs> before that yeah. point. And we can say, no, well, that's ridiculous. That's not irrational. That, that's not rational. But it, but it was entirely rational yeah. in the context of the time. And I think some of the, um, some of the sort of excessive techno-optimism that we've seen in the last few years that's been tempered in the last couple of years um, has been based on that, that, that lack of understanding, lack, lack of recognition that we're working in a context of human experience yep. and we've got to speak to that experience, relate to that experience, give yeah. people a sense of confidence and, and put it in that context. Yeah. And, and put people have... at ease. Don't just assume mm. they're going to buy into sure. a whole, yeah, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, teleportation. I'm looking forward to that, but I am afraid my head will be left behind or well, that, something, right. you know. <laughs> these, <laughs> these are real risks we're facing. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, you. I, I think we, we also talked a little bit about, quite interestingly, saying you spoke, Adrian, about um, the reliance that, that we will have on technology. We're obviously incredibly reliant on it now, but to your point, companies will have even greater responsibility if we are freed from our devices because we'll expect to kind of walk down the street and there's magically a service there saying, Liat, walk left or right, whatever mm-hmm. it is to get to your to get to where you want to go. So kind of now more than ever, they need to be kind of accelerating adoption of your code of conduct. Yes, I think so. And it, and and importantly, it's not just the governments and the companies that have to step up, as we said. It's also all of us as citizens, and that's a good example. I came out of the, the, the tube in London this morning and pulled out my, my phone and checked on, on Google Maps where I was supposed to be going and, and started to do that thing where we just kind of turn sort of 45 degrees and yeah. see if the, the arrow moves. Thinking. And then I thought, hang on a minute. I, I know London. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I actually I'm looked the, for a moment at the map. the most famous like, places. That's right. I thought, oh, it's, it's north up Regent Street. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, so we all have to just remind ourselves, and this is really important, as we know, for those of us who have kids, yes. we have to think about this in context of, of our kids, not to make ourselves stupid. Yeah. because humans are not stupid we're incredibly intelligent and you know it's on all of us isn't it with with clear responsibilities of governments and companies but it's on all of us to to ensure that we that we use technology for for, for our good and for our long-term benefit not just for a quick dopamine hit or whatever but really importantly though that that, that governments and companies realize companies especially that if they if they by design create products that that trigger uh, in an unhealthy way those kind of reactions and and increase the risk of those kind of addictions then they're responsible there too and they have to step up yeah that's interesting i think for for an example 
you know, that's very common now, gambling in the UK uh, and online gambling. I think they've only recently started to talk about uh, gambling companies having more more responsibility mm. effectively for, for you know, protecting people. Um, and that's as old as time. And that's only just coming into play now. So... Well, I think I think to Adrian's point, there's a, there's a there's a whole piece around the next generation. You know, kids kids who are you know coming in to 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 education. I mean, it, it's they're being brought up on technology. You know, and so we often use the analogy of saying every business is becoming a digital business in some way, shape, or form because technology is running everything from a bank to a hospital to you know farms now. Uh, but actually, the individuals who are who are coming in through our education system um, are being being brought up completely reliant on technology so we, we need to have that that kind of balance to to make sure uh, we do create that future which is which is both machine-led but also human-led and and actually the combination of the two will actually give us the outcomes that we want and some of the positive benefits absolutely absolutely if i i mean if i let my three-year-old she would just be on the phone the whole day and she would be telling alexa to play frozen all day and i think <laughs> nobody wants that no one wants that thank <laughs> god yeah so M- we need mine to... is the same and he's in the middle of his gcse <laughs> so he's got no excuse what, frozen <laughs> <laughs> Not quite frozen now, no. Slightly different lyrics. My, my only saving grace is that Alexa can't understand her when she says Alexa, but as soon as that happens, it's game over. So I think, yeah, we need to teach them to use it responsibly, mm. um, obviously, and that should be from every level at school. Uh, but before we leave you listeners, I think today... It would be great to hear from Chintel and Adrian. What would be what? What's your dream for your perfect AI tactile internet future? What I mean, what kind of fun thing are you looking forward to? Like maybe, maybe yeah, I can see Adrian's like, I want <laughs> equality for. Let's just talk about <laughs> the fun. Well, yeah, I'll try and be fun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was thinking but about something was... that Chintel would be better on fun in a moment. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was. Um, uh, I mean, look, there are there are fun things. There there are there are great ways that we can be entertained and we can explore the world, um, uh, you know, from from uh, the comfort of our own uh, sitting rooms uh, that we've never seen before. But I also think, um, you know, the prospect, say, for example, of uh, a uh, someone who has problems with sight, partially sighted or, or, or blind, being able. And this is, you know, real technology that is very close to mass rollout, as I understand. Being able to walk into a room with uh, with their phone, sort of perhaps, you know, in their in their top pocket, um, and and the uh, and an earpiece in their ear, and to hear, okay, it's a room of about forty people. There's a guy on the left who's just standing up. He's at about ten o'clock. He's he's probably going to speak. Those kind of technologies are incredible. And and the way, you know, the way at, at a global level. You know, I spent most of the last twenty years campaigning and doing policy work on uh, on global poverty and and preventable disease. The way we're seeing now the application of of um, of, of this kind of um, tactile uh, uh, technology in uh, in healthcare around the world um, is phenomenal. And you know, that's why we and, and Tim Berners Lee, as the inventor of the web, are fundamentally optimists. 
Um, but we have to be smart optimists. We have to be uh, savvy, and we have to look out for these issues about design, these issues about the data that goes into the system, um, and set ourselves really ambitious and uh, worthwhile goals. That actually, if we're gonna if we're gonna have all this extraordinary opportunity from technology, let's make sure that it does more than just uh, uh, you know sort of help us to enjoy a film with more sensory yeah. perception. <laughs> But we like that too. No, I think that's amazing. Thank you, Adrian. Um, how do you follow that? How do you follow <laughs> that? Yeah, very profound and, 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 and completely agree with uh, with Adrian there. Look, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of sci-fi, and, and and actually you mentioned teleportation. So I mean that that will be it will be incredible. I think you know we've we've done great things. We put internet in space uh, over the last uh, uh, decade, and and uh, you know that will enable new things as we as we explore uh, explore space further. But I think the one that I I'm I've been fascinated with since being a child was the the food replicator. You know the ability to actually print food on demand and so as i as i see kind of the 3d printing market evolve you know from uh plaster casts that that people wear uh to to um replacement uh, uh parts uh, of various things that you need whether it's the hammer that you need for those diy jobs or you know the the 20 odd thousand parts on your on the flight that you might next take that are being 3D printed. I think the idea of actually food being 3D printed is is something that's already started, but I think that might accelerate over time. And so actually how that will change the dynamics of of, of how food is produced, um, you know, will you just download the, the, uh, the, the ingredients and the design to yourself and actually print it locally? What, what will that do? You know, what will happen to materials? You know, what will happen to crops? You know, all of those areas are, are quite fascinating in a, in, a, in a world where we need more sustainable sustainable production of food and things like that. Yeah, so I think that, that's a, that's going to be one of the big areas, I think, uh, in, in the future. Yeah, that's enormous. Food supply chain, the mm. bees are dying, we need to fix it. Yeah, this is I would, both I would wonderful. Say, <laughs> no, not, not too fast, please, because yeah. my uh, my son, who is literally sitting in a, in a physics GCSE exam right now... Oh, good luck. Uh, yeah, would, uh, if he had the opportunity, would print out his Big Mac yeah. and teleport himself out of the room. And, and, and that's not going to help it's, his career. But, you know, it's n- nice to have that freedom and just, you know, choose Absolutely. which path he wants to take. And, you know, if he chooses that path, you'll just have to deal with it. Okay, I hear you. <laughs> well, good luck to Adrian's son. And <laughs> on that note, and thank you both, Adrian and Chintan, for joining us today. It's been fascinating and we're looking forward to the next 30 years now more than ever. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.